welcome. Welcome to the second part of the podcast of Crino Fuel to the Flames. This podcast is based on the recording of a public debate on a hot humanitarian topic, and Kuno did organize it together with Humanity House in The Hague in February 2019. And the main topic is, what if? What if humanitarian action unintentionally lengthens the durations or become part of a conflict? A true humanitarian topic. You can hear three speakers and a well-involved and very experienced audience. The three speakers are Jok Mudouk Jok, he is the Executive Director of the Soot Institute in South Sudan, Bram Janssen, Assistant Professor at the Wageningen University of Research, and Akke Boeren from Menesis Frontier in Amsterdam. We start with the first question from the audience. My name is Rod Mina, I'm working in the ISS of Erasmus, I'm working in a research project with Professor Tehisworth about disasters and response in different conflict settings. And South Sudan is one of my cases. My question is about what about the uh, localization agenda or the idea of localization if the great bargain succeeds or if we really have uh, yeah, all the commitments and localization is really happening. Do you feel that still aid will prolong conflict? What do you think about the localization agenda and this idea that aid might prolong conflict? Shall we go right away? One more question, and then, and it was to Jock, this question? Yeah. yeah. How do I get that? <laughs> I'm sorry, Karin. Thank you. My name is Lisbeth van der Hoogte. I worked before in the humanitarian sector and also on conflict. Uh, I don't really recognize the, uh, what you are presenting in this. This is a really bad figure that I can hardly imagine that it still exists because then you think, where were the local politicians before the aid organizations came? I know experiences where you are in contact, you know where you go to, where you are uh, uh, negotiating, etc., where you work with local organizations or you have to work with local organizations, where you have to know the local context. What are the tensions? What are the vulnerability? And when this is happening, I don't know which organizations was there, but that was a very bad work. And I don't recognize really practice what we know that, uh, nowadays in this presentation, that everything is okay and we don't have problems and we can improve a lot. I agree. But as this, I can't... Where were all the politicians that this could happen? Is this a real case still happening today? Or should we go to our dictionary here? <laughs> Everybody uh, know you what localization is about? No, no, okay. Shall we ask Tom to explain it in two sentences? Yes, please. <laughs> okay, localization is involving more the local organizations of a country in the, in the humanitarian aid. And the grand bargain? The grand bargain is, is a big um, bargain between... Uh, Donors, aid or international aid organizations, and the localization is one of the ten um, issues that they agreed upon. Thank you, Jock. And I'm going to ask the other two also oh, yeah. about the okay. localization issue. Yeah. First, the lady. She doesn't recognize the picture you are. <laughs> well, the presentation. The presentation is very much about the current situation. Um, we we visit Bentiu. We've gone to. Triangular area between lakes and southern unity and Warab State. Formerly, we go all kinds of places, 
and the level of negotiation that is going on between aid agencies and the local government in order to have access to the population is a major bargain in the interest of the politicians and not in the interest of the aid recipients because the, aid, the politicians are appropriating the aid as their own deliveries to their people so that they can rally their bases in support of them. The aid organizations are relying on the local government for their protection. So obviously they have to give and take uh, because the security of aid workers is in the hands of the local government. Uh, and therefore, you, you have to seek their, their agreement. So what, where the aid agencies go is where the government or the other party has allowed them to enter. They can't just go on their own. And if they are going to be relying on the local authorities to protect them, you're going to have to give what the local authorities demand of you or you don't get access. Maybe we should ask Aka right away. Is that true? You're paying them, you need them for your security? Um, no, we don't pay them. Um, we do need to negotiate security, fair enough, uh, absolutely. Um, I, I don't think it's as simplistic as Jock uh, puts it. Again, I, I do think there's a difference. Um, in healthcare, I think we are able to negotiate and we, we, we abide by our principles, and I know it's a bit of a a killer for a lot of people, but yes, the neutrality is very important. So we do negotiate with armed parties, and we will come in and say, this is what we can offer. Um, that doesn't always go smooth. You may have very difficult discussions with authorities uh, in communities. Um, we do sometimes have even if security incidents because we don't agree with authorities, uh, local authorities. Uh, actually, currently I have one in South Sudan, um, a situation where there is a big disagreement between authorities and MSF, uh, on uh, what we should provide and how we can provide it. We engage in that debate. We will um, negotiate. Uh, it's a give and take in the sense of uh, listening to each other, um, but most of the time we do manage to convince that we think what we do is the right thing to go away, the right way to go forward. So, um, but again, I, I, I think also in your presentation, if you look at the current situation, the, the, the 2017 famine declaration was a very complex one, and I, I do recognize some of the things that Jock presented um, in the debates at that time in South Sudan. Um, we, well, we don't participate in the, um, the, the fundraising uh, 555. Um, we also, we saw an increased malnutrition, um, but we could not confirm a famine <coughs> ourselves, uh, partly because we're not everywhere. You cannot be everywhere. Um, and uh, so, so it is very difficult, and these things are extremely complex, um, and you have to maneuver through that, so, yeah. And the message Jock gave, they were proclaiming a, an, an, a famine because they wanted something good from all kinds of donors coming with their goods and their aid. That was more or less below because uh, you indicated maybe there wasn't a big famine, but some people had, had some kind of interest in proclaiming a uh, famine. Yeah, well, I, I, I think it was problematic anyways. I mean, to put four countries in one big pot, uh, and I think already there, I think there's, there's, we need to look at that. Um, how can you generalize uh, a Yemen with, what was else, Yemen, South Sudan? There were lots of different dynamics. Um, data collection is very problematic in the areas that, uh, specifically in Unity. We were on the ground uh, with staff. Uh, with, we, we had to, it, it was a very conflictual situation at that moment. It was very difficult to move around in southern Unity. Uh, we had to go by boats. We had to camp out. And you couldn't reach a lot of locations. I think it was very difficult to make generalizations. Uh, we did see a large amount of increased malnutrition, definitely. 
could we conclude it was a famine? We, had, we as MSF, we couldn't conclude that, but also couldn't say no. Um, I think, um, yeah, so I think when, a, when an IPC makes those statements, um, we listen, we, we engage in dialogues to see what's happening and to see how we can respond. I think that's the most important thing for us at that time. If there's malnutrition, let's try to respond to it because it is necessary at that very moment as an emergency. Well, so there is much of it. There is a lot of it. And in fact, that is how aid becomes uh, in, 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 intertwined with the, with the, uh, the, as a part of the economy of war. It's such that those who receive it, who are lucky to receive it, and by the way, the distributions that you saw are usually not the, the, the end of the distribution. You distribute it in the presence of Hawajat, the, 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 the white aid workers, and then you give it to, you give it, you, the, the people will take it away to show the Hawajat that the, the, aid, the aid recipients have actually received and they are going home with their aid. But they don't go home. They go to some other store somewhere in the bush where it is all collected again and then it is redistributed according to the SPLA. And, 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 so, and then when you, and, and, and that is, that is a major, major, uh, diversion to the point where OLS used to report that secretly, I mean, uh, uh, informally, that up to 40% of food aid was going to the fighters. I mean, if you are doing, giving half of the food aid to the fighters, how are you not a party to the war? And yeah, so, but this, but, 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 but then, because this was aid uh, uh, given through international organizations, and localization is about the issue trying local yeah. organizations no, to, but, to deliver aid, but, and maybe then it, then it goes better. Okay, no, say? no, but the, the most important part is where uh, the food aid given by internationals actually become part of the economy in terms of it being sold and exchanged, so that the local people are deciding what is the best way to use aid. Uh, on their own. So that is the kind of localization. But there is that point where uh, two ways in localization. One is in uh, giving national NGOs the aid to do it yep. because of the assumption that if they are locals, they are the ones who know their country better, maybe they should try it. Um, but who are these national NGOs? In the, in, the, in the 90s, the national NGOs were SPLA NGOs. And so they were, they were governmental NGOs. They were not, uh, they were not uh, purely uh, NGOs. And the second way is uh, buying from local farmers yeah. in order to, get, to give aid. Uh, so that's another way of localization. It's not uh, flying in the not, food, not flying buying in it locally. Yeah. You go to areas of surplus, you buy it from there. You actually tell the farmers before harvest that if you have extra, we will buy it from you. And we will store it. And when the, when the short, food shortage comes, we will. In that way, you are lubricating the local market. And in that way, so, so then if you are involved in supporting the local market, you might as well turn the whole aid thing into business. Bram did have a certain look. So <coughs> first we go to Bram, then we go to Terra. Well, <laughs> you know, I want to maybe step back a little bit on, on the previous topic, and that is the, the famine de declaration. This IPC system, the, the, the graph you showed, is basically made up of a, a series of categories of of increasing catastrophe, and famine is the last category. Now, at some point you said after four months it was gone. There was no famine anymore. But if you look at the IPC classification scale, for instance, go, if you go to FuseNet, the famine early warning system, you see that it is still in the almost extreme phase. If you go there now, I just checked it, there's still at this very moment a part of South Sudan that is in an emergency phase. So 
it is not that the food insecurity ceased. Maybe the classification of famine has reduced into uh, you know, a critical catastrophe or an emergency. I th that's, uh, I think, important to say, because it's not that it is not there anymore. It's not gone all of, all of a sudden. It is there. Maybe we call it differently. And there's some arbitrariness in when something is a famine and not. And it is political to such a degree that if we decide to call it a famine, then intervention becomes almost uh, you know, a necessity. We will not you know, let people die and so on and so forth. So I, w I wanted to sort of contribute that, that the, the declaration of famine, the politics behind it, both from the receiving end as, of, uh, as for the, 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 you know, the people that define famine in the first place, is complicated, but it is not that black and white as uh, some people might assume that, that you present it. I think there's a nuance there that is necessary. Secondly, uh, and that is something that I find a little bit difficult, but I'm you know, very, very slightly bothered by the way you uh, critically uh, address NGOs in the international community, and I agree with that uh, uh, almost completely, but somehow you miss a little bit out, I think, on the amount of, of um, you know, uh, leaders that sort of go ahead with this. It is not as if aid... Sudanese leaders. Yes, it is not as if aid befalls people completely. It's not pushed upon them alone. It's also allowed. And um, I think that that level of leadership that abuses aid, bluntly, visibly known to everybody, especially now after uh, critical analyses were made that discuss uh, kleptocratic uh, elites, uh, right? That's still somewhere down on the local level. There are these people that, that the picture was actually about, the young boy, that apparently have no one else than abusive leaders. So even if some aid ends up in a political economy of aid that is already you know, the norm, that is already routine, still the aim to try different ways, try to sharpen analyses, try to find other approaches to address those utter most vulnerable people on the ground because their own local leaders fail to do so, makes sense. The point is, I think, the, the, the critical bottom line of the whole discussion, if we would factually know that more people die of aid than without it, as at some point I think you sort of hinted at, yeah. obviously it should stop. Obviously the effect of aid would be more harmful than... than and, and I think that is the essence of what we try to do here tonight, right? But I'm not sure we're there. I don't think we're there, and I think every new cycle of conflict and post-conflict, new generation of aid people may actually try to, to, uh, you know, to provoke change among leaders, uh, try to try new approaches and so on and so forth. Maybe that's my naivete, but at the same time, I, you know, I, I, I feel that that misses a little bit so far in, in, in the presentation. I think um, we go to the audience again, is it okay? Well, let, me, let, me, let me add one thing, because it's very short. Colleagues of, of mine at the university, um, in the economic section, right? they try to provide an evidence for the effect of development assistance. So in, in particular areas in sub-Saharan Africa, they now experiment with, they give aid to certain villages and not aid to other villages, and they test what actually differs over a longer period of time. And the researchers were actually treated with disdain by some people that say this is unethical, but this is not life-saving assistance, right? This is development assistance. What this actually would call for is something like that. If we go to a crisis area where we know there is a crisis that is already life-threatening and we realize that aid is definitely not completely saving societies at all, but you know, may prevent some people from tipping over, 
if we really want to discuss this issue on a factual basis, we should go maybe to the length of really, truly experimenting and providing evidence for that. I shall tell you, Hilworst, Professor of Humanitarian Aid, here and there. Yes, yes. Um, now I'm tempted to say something about the latter point, but I have another question. About the latter point, I think we <laughs> could actually extrapolate those kind of things because there are many cases where aid can access certain parts and not others. Mm. Uh, the case that comes in mind immediately is a 27 drought in, Af in the Horn of Africa, meant to be the worst in 60 years, where Kenya and um, uh, Ethiopia, were, that were accessible not just to aid but also to services, had no excess death, whereas Somalia had 250,000. So that would be some indication of the life-saving of aid. Right. My question to York is actually about methodology. Um, and it's tricky because your story is full of economic effects of aid. And to some extent, I hear you give examples of how aid leaks into the political economy of war. But I also hear you give many examples how aid leaks into the economy of survival, the economy of maintenance, the economy perhaps even of solidarity and of reciprocity and of redistribution. Because people, as you say... They get aid, they go to the market, they sell it. Well, somebody else can sell it onwards, they can do something with it. Isn't aid indirectly, in its multiplier effects, the reason not only why those individuals survive who get, who get some, a bag of food, but also how communities survive and how they maintain their economy afloat in those times? And how do, they, how do you methodologically distinguish between the two? Have you, have you been <coughs> able to really pull apart like how much is going into this economy of war and how much is going into the economy of survival, as I may call it? Yeah, you know? certainly. No, great question. I think, as you know, uh, South Sudan is probably the only place on the continent of Africa where there has been a continuous and concerted intensive provision of humanitarian aid for 40 years. So it is, it's the best example you can have to try out all these things, the two things. One is, does hold, withholding aid, uh, can it really um, improve? I mean, can it, can it encourage the local leaders to seek peace because their people are dying? And you could try it in some places. Throughout the 90s and two, uh, early 2000s, going back to, to 1989 when OLS was created, you could see in some places that were completely isolated. People were desperate for food, but there was no access. And it didn't go in for months, up to a year sometimes. And the death and the mortalities from, 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 from food deficits in those areas were not any higher than places that receive aid. So you could easily see it by looking across South Sudan, what was done in this location, what was that done in that location for many months. And, and it is in, within one country, you can have those things. So that is what I do methodologically, is looking at where aid was given at the same time as aid was withheld from another location by a variety of reasons, whether Sudan did not give a go-ahead to the SPLA or the warring parties within South Sudan have... Uh, prevented access. So you could do that. Um, on the issue of uh, whether it is uh, a, 
the nuances of aid have become part and parcel of the economy of how people survive in war, and how do you distinguish that from the fact that aid itself positively contributes to oiling the economy of the local people, in which case it is a positive thing, right? So what I'm saying is, why does it have to be humanitarian aid then if all you want to do, and I'm talking here specifically about food aid, why does it have to be a humanitarian aid if what you want to do is the local economy to be better oiled? Why can't it be a trade system? Why can't you sell aid, for example? If that is, I mean, I, I, I don't know if it has been tried, but it is something just came to my mind that if that was the case you are pushing, that, well, if it, if it contributes to survival of people through improving the market circumstances, wouldn't it be more effective if it was actually a trade? Because already one of the things that we say the aid has done is killing the local market and killing the, the, the aspiration to produce more for the market. Because uh, people in rank have more grain, but they cannot sell it. Because people across the river have received aid, and they don't need to buy from rank. Any of two, you, you want to reflect on it, or should we go further into the audience? Well, maybe one yeah. thing is that, that, that I'm thinking about the notion of siege. Right? Is that, that if, if there are accidental villages that have not received aid, they were apparently also not attacked, or they were apparently also not subject of, of siege of armed forces that withheld their natural livelihood opportunities for them. So maybe those are exceptional situations. But for instance, the siege of, um, was it Wau? I think so. The famine that happened there in, in uh, 98 was a direct effect of a, of a, of a warring situation. So aiding those people... Um, that were subjected to that was never a good, never a good effect. It was always playing into the hand to, to a certain degree of the siege, but maybe an attempt to, you know, to, 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 to open up space to find a political solution to a very, you know, problematic war strategy. So um, I think you know the, the it would be great if you find that all, that societies can survive finding leaves in periods of drought or whatever. But if that famine that we discuss is the direct effect of conflict, then those isolated communities are not illustrative. They simply are exceptions, I would say. And then, you know, they, they prove the ingenuity of people and the creativity and their agency, perhaps. But it doesn't really say much, per se, about those highly tense political contexts where aid is both manipulated and where famine is created as a political uh, aim. Was Thank you. Sure. I go to the audience. I'm uh, going to, to collect some gentlemen here in front, then I go up here. Hi, my name is uh, Godfrey Lado, and um, I'm the conflict in the sense that I'm from South Sudan. I have uh, a real uh, reservation to the whole stelling, or what if humanitarian aid prolongs conflict? Um, Humanitarian aid organizations may be contribute to conflict in a certain way, but there's also a responsibility from the government. And uh, for me, it's an issue of the marriage between the NGOs and the governments. Like, if NGOs does not have a clear agreement with any country, I don't think they should go into that country to support because what they will be doing is contributing in some way into the situation that is not going well in that country. 
Um, I uh, want to recall that you started out by talking about the, um, I think it's now called the nexus by now, between humanitarian aid and uh, structural or development uh, cooperation. And I, I think I want to support what the last speaker said, that um, in my opinion and in my experience, having seen in northern Iraq and then in South Sudan how um, government, local to national government, is, is sidelined by the aid industry, um, ridiculed sometimes also, um, for not being effective, for being corrupt, for being unable to support their population. Uh, and then the effect it has that uh, more and more sometimes the um, government is left aside and the aid industry um, takes on uh, responsibility. It's, it's like an automatic reaction in a way because of thinking that the government is unable to do it. Uh, in a conflict situation especially, um, um, the link with government is more of uh, seeking permission to operate and maybe indeed having to relinquish some aid to to government. But um, in, in South Sudan, there were good organizations. I used to work with um, um, uh, Skills for Southern Sudan, now Skills for South Sudan, which uh, was promoting and supporting government. Um, so alongside the humanitarian aid industry, I think you still, that, that's my point now, you should be uh, working on um, improving government uh, training, uh, capacity strengthening of government, so that in the longer run, government can really take on um, development of the country, but also being involved in whatever emergency or humanitarian uh, aid should be um, uh, flowing into the country, but it should be uh, at the same time building capacity of government in my opinion. One more. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Hello, my name is Jochien Wakker. I worked in the humanitarian sector and on conflict at the same time <laughs> as an analyst. Uh, but um, uh, I have two questions, if I may. <laughs> Uh, yes. Uh, one is, is anyone uh, here knowledgeable enough to compare the situation of uh, the OLS situation and the 2017 situation, as uh, whereas humanitarian aid in conflict is concerned? Because it seems that these uh, examples are being uh, confused or at least uh, uh, used uh, simultaneously, and maybe that's completely different. Mm. And another question is, um, what about the local leaders you were talking about? What do you mean by local leaders? At which level? And how could they play a role in effective humanitarian aid? I think the thing of the local leaders comes back many times. It's also about the capacity building of, of local of, of, uh, governance structures. Um, you also mentioned it, that there are also the involvement of leaders from South Sudan itself. Uh, maybe I start with Akke. Um, how do you deal with local leadership, which is perhaps not the way operating you would like? Maybe, maybe they are corrupt, maybe they are doing nasty things, using your help. And how you can mitigate those, those, those nasty uh, elements of local governments that are not doing their things? 
Um, it, it comes down to, to, to discussing, to negotiating, to, to um, trying to be smart in, in how to approach it. Um, but at the end of the day, you have, to, you have to, if you're in the same place, you have to work together. Um, I think, again, healthcare is different than food aid. I mean, I keep repeating that, but um, health, everybody has an interest as well. People need, also the local leaders need to be treated. They also get sick. Um, and of course, the food, uh, they, th th that may be the same, but it's, it's, a, it's a different commodity, or how, do we, how, how would we call it? Um, yes, we have had challenges. Uh, I mean, they don't always appreciate what we do or say, uh, particularly say maybe more than what we do. I think our, our work is overall appreciated. Um, we work with a lot of uh, South Sudanese staff. So our, um, MSF has uh, 300 international staff and over 3,000 uh, South Sudanese staff. They also play a big part in, 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 in how we negotiate with communities. Huh? They, they know MSF well. They also know the communities well. They are often part of the community. They're part of the leadership. They're part of uh, the authorities that are, are there. And together, we try to have that dialogue. So I would say, I mean, we've been there more than 30 years. Um, we most of the time can work it out, and uh, even if we have differences. But it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a lot of negotiation. It's a lot of work. Yeah. Um, the apples and the pears. We are comparing two different um, um, moments, and, and, and isn't it flowing from the one to the other? Um, like the Operation Lifeline Sudan and the 2017 uh, women. I, I'm not a specialist on OLS. I was a little bit, I was not involved at that time. The, um, well, the, so the way to, to look at it, of course, is the question that were asked on the eve of the new uh, famines, which was, <coughs> is it OLS all over again in terms of injecting in massive humanitarian supplies, much of which then goes to the, to the warring parties, uh, especially in view of the SPLA not being paid, for months on end, and they are having to rely on the local communities. Uh, and so in that sense, it was seen to be a repeat <coughs> of the OLS, which nobody wants to, because repeating OLS means that we are looking at another 10 years, 15 years of humanitarian aid, which then becomes uh, a challenge to both to the South Sudanese, who are having to go back and depending on on, on, on aid again in an independent country. And they, so the biggest difference was that aid was done now being negotiated with a, with a government of an independent state. It was not being negotiated by a third party like Sudan or the UN. It was directly with the local government. It was different from the way it was negotiated in the case of OLS. So those, there are differences, but there are similarities as well. Similarity being that um, uh, the the ability of the famine-affected civilians was still at the mercy of the warring parties, which was exactly the same thing in all last time. So that is similar. So it does, you cannot uh, delink it from the, way, from the images we, we are left with from OLS. But it is different in the sense that you, there is a government that is supposedly a responsible government. It's no longer Khartoum denying access. It is now a local government which is constitutionally compelled to take up responsibility for its people. And it is that same government which is expected to, to provide welfare, which is now uh, creating an environment where aid doesn't get to the people who need it. 
So then that is a, ma a ma massive thing. Perhaps you go into what Alex Duval called famine crimes. Uh, the sense that people who make it difficult for people to access aid to the point where they starve uh, have actually committed a, a crime that can be tried in local courts uh, if people can raise it. So that is, a, that is, a different, that is what is different about the current. Uh, with regard, when we talk about leaders, if I'm sitting in the Hague, local leaders mean South Sudanese leaders at the national level. Right? So we're talking about the president and the parliament and the ministries and all that. But if I am in Juba and I talk about local leaders, I'm talking about state leaders and payam leaders and at the, at the very uh, local administration level. So what I mean by uh, local leaders in this sense is that there is a government in place. If that, if that government ha is worth its salt, then whatever aid that comes in should be aid that only supplement the efforts of the state. And the state is, not on, is, state is only not able to provide for everyone, but there is a plan in place. There is a program such that when foreign aid comes, it falls into that which is a local project. But in this case, it is not there. So if the government is not taking its own responsibility, I'm saying, in addition to being compelled by our own morals to provide aid, <coughs> exercise political pressure as well to bear on these leaders. And, 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 local, and, the, and no, global northern political leadership that provide aid should not simply hide behind provision of aid in order not to be compelled to seek political solutions. And I think that it's a quick way for, uh, for a politician sitting in The Hague to not want to be involved in the search for, for political solution if the, if the Netherlands government is already giving money. Is it all about political pressure, or also what the first lady said about strengthening capacities of Absolutely. leaders at a local level, at the village level, until national level? That is, I mean, uh, her reference to health is a is a is a is a great point in terms of 98% uh, of health workers being paid by NGOs. One of the one of the things that the provision of health aid has done is not just giving medicine and vaccinations and and, and treating wounded people. It is also these people are on the job training. These, these nurses and midwives are being trained. And, and those were things that the government needed to do by setting up all those training colleges all across the country, but they were not able to do it. So perhaps this is one part of aid that can be given a, a, an exception as, as one that provides not just direct aid, but actually give people skills for future. You are looking at me. I have a small comment to yeah. make. Also, <laughs> no problem. <right>? Please. <laughs> or do you want to rush on? No, 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 no. No, please. because these cases is actually quite interesting. Are they comparable or not? And um, I think they are, and they are not. I think you, that's that's right. But I, there's one thing that springs to mind, and that is that uh, one of the main um, discourses of why aid was problematic during the time of Operation Lifeline Sudan was because the the Sudanese or the Northern Sudanese. Um, appropriating of it, or the I think you call the bureaucratic war, eh? the, the propping up of red tape and making things complex. And there was that famous humanitarian aid commission, the HAC, that was being accredited, or uh, you know, it was attributed to their trying to, to control aid. Now, one of the things that I found so much on my round uh, in, in, uh, among aid agencies was that many people said that the, the South Sudanese uh, agencies that were responsible for 
that same role basically before a new state, were more and more starting to behave like the Huck. So they adopted, some of them actually had worked for the Huck before because you know, the, there was also, uh, and, and Southerners were employed there too. They copied or they continuated that, uh, let's say, that role of how the state tries to engage with, with aid. And I found that significant. So I think there are actually some comparisons to make um, uh, there also. There's one thing. The other thing I thought was local leaders. But another thing I found during my round was that quite many humanitarian aid actors, if you go down to the individual level of the, the person, knew on a personal level which leaders were actually, you know, they had a better relation with. And it's, it would be ridiculous to say that every leader in South Sudan is an abusive political kleptocrat. That's nonsense, obviously. So um, it's, I think that distinction, to make a distinction between some leaders that have a certain role in that political economy of aid and others that have another role or others that you can talk with in a different way or some people have been involved for 30 years and they basically grew up with people that have now become leaders in, in some area, some region in South Sudan. That distinction and that diversity and hence that way of seeing where are uh, potential areas where aid delivery may work in a certain way whereas in another area that may not because of the power differential I think is is one of the ways to go around, which also needs a critical analysis again and, and you know, the, the, the sort of personal relation or engagement of the aid agency with, with people on the ground. That's it. Okay, we're looking at well, I, I, I think I just want to add to that because I, I do think, um, when I speak about local leaders, I think it's good to clarify was it much more on village level than at national level. Um, but I do think um, if you look at national level, the hack has been replicated, I would say, in South Sudan. There are many um, policies being put in place in the country to um, uh, constrain, constrain, control, <laughs> control um, limit access for humanitarian aid. I would call it more an excess. Uh, I think that's the word. It, I mean, the, the famous example is the work permit uh, recently. Um, I, I think all those who work there as NGOs, uh, we've all struggled with that. And, and what do you do? And how do you react to that uh, in, in a situation where, where you want to give aid, but you're being asked to pay $10,000 or $4,000 per person for a work permit, uh, all of a sudden, uh, overnight, from 150 to 10000 I, th I think there's so many things there that uh, create difficult access things, and yes, you need to look for opportunities and, and, and push back to not be instrumentalized in that uh, financial economy of aid. Thank you. I just hear we have something like five minutes left, Kari. Oh, yeah, this is going to be fast, fast, fast. I happen to see that there are people from the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. I don't want to put you in the spotlight, but we did, if you're not feeling comfortable, I just go the other way. But there was a lot about political pressure and how can you deal, um, and, and, and the humanitarian organization can't do anything, but maybe the European Union of the United Nations or in the Netherlands could put some pressure on leaders that are not doing their thing. Would you like to reflect on it? Or? Yeah, okay, Christina, thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much, Peter. My name is Christine Piren, and I'm leading the humanitarian aid team at the Foreign Ministry. Uh, I'm here together with my colleague, who is the expert on uh, the Horn of Africa, including South Sudan. And the reason why we are here is because these are pertinent questions. So we do want to listen, and we do want to deliberate on what is the right thing to do. When it comes to freezing political actions, maybe two things. First of all, and that taps a little bit on what, uh, Bram, you were saying, it is accountability that you ask from the donors to respond to things that go wrong, but what I indeed miss a little is the accountability that you would ask from your, from your own leadership to actually be able to provide the access and to also do the right thing. When it comes to political 
efforts that we can undertake. Um, we do, we, you know, we've been a member of the Security Council last year, and one of the things that we were proud of that we achieved is to have this conflict and hunger resolution adopted. So that is a clear instrument and a tool that tries to provide a compass that actually uh, having people starved in a war situation should be a crime that belongs to the past. We're not there yet. But that was a very outspoken and front-door diplomacy work that we've been doing, very political indeed, because there's never been a resolution adopted on a theme. So that was actually a precedent that we hope that we can also pursue when there's other issues at stake as well. And then also, you know, behind the doors, there's also a lot of diplomacy going on, but sometimes very local and sometimes very context-specific also. Um, and we do have, obviously, our people in South Sudan who do plea for respect for the international humanitarian law uh, on a daily basis almost. So if there is an increase of taxes for getting a permit to do your job, you will have the community speak aligned with the international institutions and the NGOs to talk about this and to say that this is not acceptable. So we do our diplomatic and political work to, to the best extent possible. Anything you'd like to add? Uh, I have thank two or three people and the, pe the voices from South Sudan we can't tell. <laughs> uh, yeah, thank you. My name is Dominic. Uh, I have worked in Khartoum in both the, the humanitarian aid organization with Adra Gold and all the things and I've worked also in the government of South Sudan in the Ministry of Petroleum and Mining. Uh, of course, uh, it leaves a lot to be said and desired and I tend to agree with uh, some of the things uh, that joke has said, uh, but it, it also resonates well to the last things that were said, that there is a, a responsibility of the governments of the day, you know, in order to see to it. Because most of the things that have been happening in South Sudan, in most cases, it is uh, conflict-related. And uh, if you look at uh, some of the questions that have been raised here with regards to the mentality of our people with regards to aid, it has never changed from the the days of the inceptions of the HPLA, and that areas that were once productive in terms of the manpower are now depending totally on aid. But this is because of the incurrent, I mean, the incumbent situation that has been forced on them. I remember in 2014, uh, during the time of the crisis in the aftermath, uh, the level of uh, the human, the, 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 ment the, the mentality and the mindset change, in that it became from developmental support to humanitarian organizations. And all uh, at the level of uh, you know, donors in Europe, they change their, their intervention to humanitarian. So sometimes it also goes back to the way you know, things are done around uh, you know, Europe here. And, and some people, they don't know. You know uh, and they get their, their, you know, their reports from, from their people down there. So sometimes, we know, when you even the level of security is raised, then it, it also triggers incentives to the to the to the to the people who are working. So um, you know, we need to, to to look at these things at a critical level in the sense that uh, humanitarian you cannot stop it, but then you need to enhance it in the sense that it doesn't really you know decapitate our people from doing whatever they wanted to do. 
most important is that the political leverages that need to be pushed into the people. Yeah. Because then, you know, you can expect a change. Otherwise, they will continue. Here on the Sudanese people. Yeah. Okay. And Hans, you mentioned it. One more. Uh, there were four people light over here. Ladies first. I'm sorry. <laughs> and then I go back to the panel very brief for the final remarks and then we go to brief. I just have a very, very short question. Thanks for the presentation. If you were the architect on how eight in South Sudan would look like, how would you design it if you have a free hand? <laughs> <laughs> how much time does he get for it? <laughs> that was too jock, wasn't it? <laughs> okay, final reflections, Jock, please start. Okay, so Fair question. As I, I, I mentioned it a little bit that that we need to identify what we know for a fact and what we, what we are sort of unsure about. And so what we know very well is the fact that aid has not been optimum in solving the problems and that there are other ways where aid can be, uh, humanitarian aid particularly, can be made more effective for the long term. And I'm not saying that you, 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 you nuance the relationship between development aid and humanitarian aid. I'm saying even humanitarian aid itself can be done in a way that it leaves behind something that can be sustained by the communities. And so you, find, you, you want to find those ways. We know that it works. It has worked in the case of, the, of, the, of recently the, the German embassy has been doing things differently. And they are applauded all across the country for the way they are doing it, even in feminist-stricken places. Um, so those things can be can be can be uh, learned from and replicated. Um, another thing we know is that um, recipients of aid have mixed feelings about it. That on the one hand, it's good that you express a goodwill towards us and bring aid, but let us contribute to the way aid is. Is, is, is done. What I mean here is that you will find that major humanitarian agencies in South Sudan don't have South Sudanese in leadership positions. So the, the decisions that are made at the end of the day don't involve South Sudanese. And who knows South Sudan better than South Sudanese themselves? So involving South Sudanese in decision making, maybe it is a question of skills or question of credentials and, and all, all of that, but there are South Sudanese all over the place who know their country very well and who have the knowledge, the, the minute knowledge of every situation where they can contribute to a decision about what to do. Um, uh, and, and to sort of own the operation itself, right? I mean, it's, 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 there has to be some degree of ownership of South Sudanese so that when you go back and criticize the humanitarian agencies, you can also say South Sudanese are part of the decision making. It's not just us alone. So share the responsibility. And then the things that we do not know are money. We do not know what would happen if the aid was not there. We do not know if actually the, the going the route of doing business is the way to replicate, to expand, to stretch the dollar. If, if people are going to contribute, to get, take aid and, and, and use it to trade anyway, maybe that's the way to, solve, to, 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 to start with, that some part of aid be done in, in a business way. Conclusive remarks? You want to add something? Sorry, I don't have solutions. The one thing that pops to mind, and that is that after um, you know, the, the peace in 
uh, in South Sudan in 2006, and then independence, there was this as assumption that development would kick in quite soon. And I know that from South Sudan itself, there was the sort of the, the demand or the question, bring us development and not humanitarian aid. And many aid agencies, had a or humanitarian agencies, kept giving humanitarian aid. Many multi-mandated agencies, right, that do both, were, uh, found, found difficulties to make that switch. Um, basically because they, they reasoned uh, there is still a crisis. There is still emergency pockets of violence everywhere and so on and so forth. Now, um, I would say, if, you, if we would allow that claim of you to sort of sink in and to make that into policy, um, I think the risk now is that aid agencies would say, not only do we still see pockets of insecurity and, and ongoing crisis and so on and so forth, we have an additional burden, and that is that we have seen that the things that we have invested have collapsed due to uh, an escalation. So there is an additional, uh, let's say, I think, uh, risk or threat that why, makes... Why, why will a school if it's going to be destroyed tomorrow? Sort of yes, thing? like if we build a hospital in Bor, and then if war breaks out, the, the hospital is gone, and then we lose, you know, double in that sense. And I, I wouldn't know how to, how to address that, but I find that, that somehow um, a complexity that is, I think, too difficult to, well, first of all... Uh, Resolve, but has strongly has to do with the trust that aid agents or donors uh, do not have or may not have that much in the South Sudanese leaders to you know to prevent a relapse into war. No, I, I just want to say thanks. I think it's a very good discussion to have together. Uh, together, and that's exactly what you say. Um, I won't close down my programs. I will keep going for now. <laughs> and Jock, if you uh, would like to uh, work with us, let's have a discussion because, indeed, <laughs> it, is, it is a problem. It is true that uh, it has been difficult to get a lot of South Sudanese into uh, management positions. It's something that I think we're working on, uh, very much so. Um, but uh, it's something, one of the attention points that I think we can, as a, as a quite uh, low-hanging fruit, uh, can go move forward with. So. Thank you. Thank you very much. We have had a discussion tonight, really, really thorough. Um, I would like to thank you all very much for your attention and your contribution to the debates. I would like to thank Ake and Bram and Jock. Thank you very much. And this is the end of the second and final part of the podcast on the hot humanitarian topic, Fuel to the Flames. Please forward this podcast to anybody who might be interested. Until next time.